0: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Times Plus special debate on the special relationship. Does it exist and does it matter? I'm joined by Phil Collins, the Times columnist, Sarah Baxter, Deputy Editor of the Sunday Times, and Sarah Amari uh, from the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to you all. Uh, we're now going to take questions from the audience. So, who would like to go first? Just listen to you and and we think about journalists and everything else, and you go to individuals... But you don't look below the surface because culturally, musical, theater, there is, for the people, that's why we voted out, because the people don't want to lose their roots. And it doesn't matter if some individual is in this position of leading the country for a few years. I don't think it can fundamentally change that relationship the anglo-saxon may be in decades to come when the spanish take over loads of america and we may change here a bit but it's going to take a long long time <laughs> oh, no, i don't know if you
1: <laughs> well i think you make a very good point i think there are very deep seated ties that bind and uh, they, uh, you know, they go right back to the, um, the idea that really the immigrants to America came from Northern Europe. Now, in fact, that's not actually true. Immigrants to America have come from all over the place, but that, that somehow or other they're seen as the, the kind of founding father type of immigrant. And so that's been around for centuries. And I mean, there is... I mean, to some extent, to get kind of complicated about it, I mean, I have a, um, a, a good friend who's African-American. She came on a trip to Britain, and people are always asking her, where are you from? And she, you know, like, well, oh, she's from America. She said, no, but where are you really from? Well, actually, her family had been in Virginia for 400 years. <laughs> and, uh, but she just had a rather different American past. Um, so she was floored by that. You know, we might say, oh, well, I'm originally from the Caribbean, or I'm, you know. but actually America it um, is a genuine kind of melting pot of people from all over the place but that kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant is how America sees itself at its best and that's where we have these very close links and I think we regard America as our cousins we do share what you say about popular culture is absolutely true and uh I'm sure it will outlast the Trump presidency, but I'm sure he wouldn't want to destroy that either. I'm sure he feels that very viscerally. He claims Scottish anyway.
2: He does claim he's Scottish. He claims, Scottish, but he's
1: actually Drump or something, <coughs> isn't he? As um, John Oliver says, he's from Ger- well, Dad was German. I
2: think we, we've got a tradition of always exporting our worst undesirable people. We don't know, half of, <laughs> lots of them went to Australia, and the Pilgrim Fathers were left Britain not because, they weren't fleeing from religious persecution, they left because they wanted to persecute people. And that's that's what they went to America for, so they could get on with their lives of being really, really horrible. And they set up America upon that basis, and they've now got the the space to do it. Um, There's a fascinating exhibition in Ellis Island of uh, immigration to the United States that shows that the communities have barely strayed from the first place they went to ever since they arrived. So they arrive from Europe in large part, and they go to the Germans in the Midwest, and they, that's where they end up, and they've stayed there. And the pattern of immigration has been the same mm. for a couple of hundred years. So people put down those roots very, very quickly. And it, very, it takes a long time to change. I'm always saying this about the analysis of politics, which is your point, which is that news has a bias towards, in the title, the things which are new, the change, because that's interesting and that's what we do. It's what news is all about. But at the same time as there's a big change, there's always things going on which are the same as they've always been. And any political moment is comprised of the two things at once. And it's very easy to forget the things which are enduring in any political moment because the change is so fascinating. And the European Union was a good case in point. I mean, all my family in Manchester just wanted to get rid of it because they thought, well, I'm British, not European. It It was a simple
3: roots-based
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. thing.
3: Well, I think I have, I have uh, some kind of special insight into this because I was, I'm, an Amer- I'm an immigrant to the United States. I was born and raised in Iran. I moved to the U.S. when I was 13, about to turn 14. And I guess w- w- what I love about the States is the fact that the, that the baseline culture is a relatively simple, right? In other words, you, to assimilate, you just have to play by a set of common rules and, and work hard at its mm-hmm. ideal. Um and i and I worry about that eroding, but the 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 sense in which I worry about it isn't just oh Trump xenophobic and 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 hostile to immigrants. there's certainly some of that, and that's been a constant strain in American history with every new wave you know the Irish or the Irish are coming and then Lithuanians and Jews and blah 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 and 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 some backlash but but somehow that that that, that assimilation uh process has has broken down in part because the welfare state has become, the welfare net has become too thick, and therefore communities don't have to get out of their bubble and learn the language and hustle in the way that earlier generations did. And that potentially then also creating resentment among among uh, kind of the older sets of, of, of immigrants. So, um, in other words, I worry about are we becoming like Europe in that regard, right, which is, <laughs> Um, where it's always harder to, to assimilate.
2: It's very interesting the, the difference between the rhetorical idea of identity in America and the, and the reality. I mean, my wife's family are Indian and they always crave going to the United States where to be an Indian American is, a, is an accepted identity. That, that dual identity, the hyphenated identity that Americans allow you to have, um, as you were saying. Yet by the same token, most ethnic groups do worse in America than they do in European countries economically. So the actual reality, and this is particularly true of black Americans, and the actual reality of their performance in economic terms is much worse, but their sense of their own performance is hugely more optimistic. So there's a feeling. America is a mood and a feeling as much as it is an achieved reality, and they rhetorically think this isn't a remarkable place, and all the Indians I know want to go there. Mm -hmm. Even when presented with the evidence, they'd be far better off living in West London. (laughs) When you,
0: get your, when you get your spreadsheets out over Christmas dinner like, and <laughs> say you don't want to move there, that's right. Yeah,
3: yeah. Because we also have the the extraordinary immigrants, the you know the, the Google founders and the, mm. and the people who, um, you know, literally come with nothing. I mean, I can I list the, the, the name. The list is so long. Um, but
2: America's rate of social mobility are one of the worst in the developed world. It's just everybody has a story like that that then masks the fact that actually the numbers are really poor. Yeah. American social mobility is a myth. It's much worse than France and Sweden and Denmark and Britain. Yeah. But the sense of opportunity and excitement and, and possibility is enormously greater.
0: The American dream is more powerful so than, the, than the figures. Absolutely, yeah. Let's take another question because we covered an awful lot of ground there. Uh, oh, you've not still got the mic. Yeah, let's go to the second one. We'll work our way. But I promise we will get to, uh, try and get to everyone.
2: Um, after the uh, slander that uh, Laura Koonsberg faced when she asked um, Trump about the, uh, his alarming beliefs in the uh, joint conference with um, Prime Minister May, um, what was this kind of response and the treatment that uh, she faced, will this affect um, journalism in terms of holding Trump and holding leaders accountable? How do you think it will affect that?
0: My personal view would be it would probably encourage uh, journalists to uh, do the same things. I think there was a, an initial reaction from from some people saying, or oh, you, you know, you shouldn't talk to the U.S. president like that. But actually, most certainly, and we were discussing earlier that the American journalists standing up for the president and all that stuff. British journalists aren't going to do that. And actually, we quite like the idea that R.P. You know, both Laura Coonsberg and Tom Newton Dunn from the Sun went over and asked difficult questions, and he didn't really like it. And that's that's uh, you know, and they got quite a lot of kudos from that from other journalists. So I, I suspect I don't know what the rest of the panel thinks, but I suspect they'll do more of that.
2: I'm sure they will. I mean, I've, I've never reported on things, so I don't do that. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, that's what other people do. Um, but there's always a tension uh, between access that you need in order to have anything and them being slavish. So you can't allow the politicians. And I've been on the other side of that relationship, where the politicians are trying to impose conditions upon the reporters. And, and as free in a free country, you can't permit that to happen. So there's always a trade-off there that has to be raised. But I thought in a law context, John Sopel had his uh, set to with uh, Trump in a press conference the other day as well. It's just making a, a star out of BBC reporters at <laughs> the moment, isn't it? And there's nothing that TV reporters like
0: more than being at this, The story suddenly being about them. Mm. I mean, normally what happens at these press conferences is, the uh, particularly when it's just the prime minister, all the TV journalists have their seats reserved at the front row and they all have their cameras filming them asking essentially the same question so that they can then cut the clip of them into their package to show that they were the one who asked the question. So it was very annoying for print journalists because she's assuming we've just used up three questions. And you've all just asked exactly the same thing. Uh, but that's, a, that's an entirely <laughs> separate point. Uh,
1: I, I, I do I do think that the American journalists are a bit too much in danger of being in love with the, the, the stories all about them. And I, I would say that although I think it's great that the BBC stands up for itself, and I admire Laura Kinsberg and John Sopel, and they're doing a great job, and long may it continue, the story is not about the BBC. It is not about media. I mean, I loved I laughed like a drain over Melissa McCarthy and her impersonation of Sean Spicer on Saturday Night Live. Mm. Nobody loved that more than journalists because, you know, we're the stars in the room. And, but, you know, let's not let it go to the head. What I love about journalism is a cat can look at a king and we can just say what the hell we like. But even then, it's not about us.
0: And actually, there's a lesson from both brexit and donald trump it's when a sort of media elite bubble just turns in on itself and closes that off to viewers or readers or voters that's when that not not that it it did
2: i mean most of the press was for leaving the european union so it didn't do that let's not rerun all of that all over again let's take another (laughs) let's take take it i've spent all
0: my life trying (laughs) to get into this elite bubble and now you're telling me it's rubbish (laughs) Uh, let's take another question. right, yeah, right, right in the back, there's a microphone next to you. There we go.
3: Hi, I wanted to ask a question about soft power. Um, you know, you talked a lot about the culture and the and the fact that you know we're quite aligned in terms of interest and all of that. But um, you know, looking back over the length of the special relationship, how much does soft power have as kind of a value at the very early days, and potentially as that's waned and continues to wane, will that have a big impact on the soft, on the special relationship? up. So yeah, I think soft power is overrated. I think uh I think power is power <laughs> and and uh, you look at the, the past eight years of the Obama administration, there was no administration that talked as much about itself as, as an administration that was going to champion soft power as opposed to, uh, um, uh, I guess, hard power, which was the Bush way. And what do you have? You have the chaos in Syria, uh, a pseudo-intervention in Lib- Lib- Libya, and then kind of leaving it to its own tribal and, and Islamist furies. You have the rise of Vladimir Putin. It's, it's, Hilarious how Democrats are now becoming such Russia hawks when for eight years they they were the one who the ones who advanced the the reset and as, if Obama said Russia is not a problem they would say y- yes Mr. President of course you know Putin is not a problem and now they've suddenly become such Russia hawks so what does that mean for the special relationship I hope there's more uh, uh, seriousness about the 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 threats that the West faces um, and I worry obviously about Donald Trump uh, talking about. NATO being obsolete, but I also think that he has a point when he says that European uh, countries, besides the UK and Poland and Estonia and Greece, should begin to meet their pledge of spending at least 2% uh, of GDP on, on defense when you have the rise of Russia as, as this aggressive new power and you have the chaos that surrounds Europe's peripheries from, uh, from the Baltic Sea down to the Middle East and then across North Africa. Um, it's it is not a it is not a unique Trumpian thing to demand Europeans to do this. Successive American administrations, Democratic and Republican, have been saying the same thing. So I thought it was very disappointing when uh, Jean-Claude Juncker said, uh, we're, we, should, we should resist American bullying on this defense spending stuff. And similar notes from Angela Merkel, who said, um, well, defense isn't all about, we, we also do international aid and climate change help, you know, whatever. It's like, no, <laughs> you know, we're, you're know, facing Putin, um, you know, development aid doesn't help in that regard, so no, soft power is, is just kind of nonsense, more or less.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm gonna disagree a little bit um, <laughs> because I do think there's an idea of America which is out there in the world, which is a cultural idea, which is an export, which is the only form of American imperialism that will ever last because it's based on an idea which, is, which comes through cultural exports, it comes through tele- it comes through film, very largely, and it comes through television, it comes through music, and these things do matter. They, obviously, they don't lead to geopolitical change, except that they sometimes can prepare the ground for it. The Cold War was not essentially won in the Vienna Summit 1961. It was won because the luxury goods in the shops in West Berlin were gaudier and more expensive and better than the, the goods in the shops in East Berlin. And that's not just about production values on handbags, it's also an idea. And I've often thought Coco Chanel is an underrated political player because the <laughs> idea of luxury and of um, enterprise and all the ideas that, that are important to the cultural sense of America are exports. And all around the world, people find that either the devil, the lifestyle to be avoided, or something to be emulated. So in I, that sense, I think soft power is an important component.
3: But that's not a federal government function. We, oh, we do I that anyway. That. So it, the best thing the U.S. can It, do. it may well be now with this, <laughs> this president.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's take another question. Gentleman Hayes, a hand just shot up with a green tile. Thank you, uh, Joe Dilger, Vice-Chair of the U.S.-U.K., John Adams Society. My question is, uh, John Major, so John Major, former Prime Minister, made a speech yesterday and he talked about when the U.K. leaves the European Union that will, in turn, make us less useful to the United States. Do the panel agree with that? Sarah? Uh,
1: well, there's, it's a bit of a convenient myth that you know it's much easier to deal with, if you're American, that it's much easier to deal with one block called Europe. It wasn't like that anyway, even when we were in the European Union. I mean, having been a reporter out there during the Iraq war, I mean, they found it. Us much easier to deal with than any other European partner. You know, the French were considered to be sort of cheese-eating surrender monkeys and all the rest. And and certainly when it comes to foreign policy, there isn't really. I mean, you know, we had uh, was it Lady Ashcroft? Or what was her name? Um, Ashton. Ashton, that's it. I mean, I can't even remember her name. I can. I, so, <laughs> so she was the it, sort of foreign she was the foreign, foreign representative. A representative, foreign for the EU, representative. Yeah, yeah. We don't want a European army. You know, we're just. So I, I actually think, I mean, although I had some sympathy with what John Major said, and I certainly think he's been outrageously traduced for speaking up for 48% of the voters, um, I do think uh, I, I think that American presidents have always preferred that sort of, you know, a bilateral relationship with leaders, and that's that's going to continue.
2: I mean, bear in mind Nixon was very opposed to Britain entering the EU, and Nixon and Heath fell out over this very significantly because Nixon essentially thought Britain was going to move towards the European Pole and away from the American Pole. So this idea of us as a bridge is a relatively recent invention. I mean, it may even be a sort of Blair years invention. It's a classic way of having both sides, isn't it? You know, The original cake and eat it merchants. So I think it's a bit overstated. However, I think John Major had a point. I think it's got to be, Something in that relationship which is about the conversation with Europe. And so I do think there's, it's one reason why I wanted us to stay within the European Union, but I don't think it's hugely important. It depends ultimately on all the things we said before on what's the state of our nation's economies, what's the state of the relationships we have, what's going on in the world, what conflicts are we involved in with the Americans. It doesn't necessarily preclude a strong relationship with America but it's one point of difference. So?
3: I think America's interest is in a Europe that is democratic um, and prosperous and free. Um, I personally supported uh, the Remain side because I, I would have preferred for the UK to remain in the councils of Europe and push for EU reform. Um, and and our, our editorial line was that as well. But now that we're out, uh, meaning now that Britain's out, um, the EU as a structure, is it that important? I don't know, especially an EU that is the Juncker EU that, that's that's delusional about the state of the world that says uh, that we should resist NATO uh, bullying on defense spending um, at a time when the politics of NATO are very fraught in the United States. And the responsible thing to have done would be to say, of course, Secretary Mattis, we're going to up our defense spending because we want to send a message to American voters who are fed up with with subsidizing European defense. instead. He said that. So, you know, is the EU itself the, the, the anchor of, of America's alliance with Europe? I don't think so. Uh,
1: NATO is NATO is
3: yeah. is, is, is much more, more
1: important. important. It'd be interesting to see how that fares yeah. under Donald Trump.
0: But it was interesting. One of the one of the most I thought skillful parts of Theresa May's press conference with him was when she just said, And of course you told me you were hundred percent committed to NATO, didn't you? Yeah. And he sort of went, mm. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um <laughs> Or Mad Dog I mean, Mattis said that, I was. That, yes. Exactly.
0: And that, you know, to some extent, that, that promise holds for as long as Donald Trump wants to hold it. And, yeah. But it was quite, a, yeah. in terms of securing a thing out of that jamboree mm-hmm. of the first visit, it was quite striking. And I think it is true that, and Reese touched on it a bit with sort of everybody saying everything he says isn't true or it's an alternative fact... Successive U.S. presidents have said that other countries aren't paying their way into And it's actually a perfectly reasonable point yeah. for an incoming U.S. president mm-hmm. to say, mm-hmm. I'm going to have another go at this. Um, but it just gets, because it's him saying it, it's yeah. seen as some, something dreadful. Let's move on and have a, another hand shot up there, the gentleman there with the glasses. Yeah.
1: Is the special relationship that relevant anymore? Uh, As you mentioned, it's really developed over the issue of defense since the two wars. And the target, I guess, was the Soviet Union. Now, you could say that Russia is now a paper tiger. It's got an economy the size of Italy. And what is of real concern to America is China. China is a much bigger economy. It's growing very rapidly. And its posture goes to the heart of the Trump supporters in the middle of the USA. you now, what is the point of the special relationship, if you like? Certainly, to America and even to us.
3: Let's we'll start with you, Sir Sure. Uh, no, China is important, but Europe is important as well. Uh, there is the, the America's economic relationship with Europe dwarfs any other economic relationship with have. so we have. So um, if Europe is destabilized, whether that's because of, a, of another massive refugee flow or uh, President Putin sending little green men into Estonia, that, that affects European stability and prosperity and that affects American interests as well. And the fact that Russia's economy is weak doesn't make it any less of a threat. In, in, in fact, it could make Putin more likely to do uh, aggressive nationalistic type moves. Um, so the dimension that I worry about Trump is some of his, his, his own personal assessment of Putin. Um, so he's right when he says to Europeans that you should spend more on defense. Um, but I, I do find I, th- I find it distasteful and, and alarming when he says, you know, he was interviewed after the Super Bowl and uh, or before the Super Bowl, and Bill O'Reilly asked him, you know, Putin's a killer, and he said, well, so are we, you know, we're not so innocent. And so, in the sense that he doesn't see the kind of qualitative moral difference between you know this liberal democracy that he leads as the leader of the free world and Putin's thugocracy. Um And so that that's but but where again where I see uh, some reason for hope is the fact that Jim Mattis, the Defense Secretary, H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, um, even Rex Tillerson, the, the Secretary of State, who everyone thought would be Putin-friendly because he was a, an ex-Exxon uh, executive, have turned out to be conventional-minded about the nature of the Russian threat. So, as important as China is, I, I don't think that the, uh, the, uh, America's security interests um, in Europe and the Russian threat are going away. Just because I'm conscious of trying to get as many
0: questions as possible. Let's take another one over there.
1: So this was, I'm not sure this is something that you touched on earlier, we didn't fully explore, but I wondered do you think it was right for Theresa May to offer Trump a state visits so early on in his presidency? Excellent
0: question, which is on my list and I hadn't asked yet. So let's start with you, Phil.
2: Yes. Um, I thought that the scramble to go there so quickly was a bit unseemly and a bit pointless. Blair was well down the list of people who went there. So were every other prime minister. It's not actually a big thing, the order everyone goes in. I don't know why it's become so important. Um, is it? Is it more so, though, with
0: an unconventional personality like Donald Trump, actually getting in the door first, becoming his
2: first best mate... I don't think you do become his first best mate, though, really, even though... He held her hand. He did.
1: (laughs) But he he was falling. Yes, because
2: he he doesn't (laughs) like stairs, which is the weirdest story. For the reason you gave before, that nothing necessarily will will stick for long. So I thought it was a bit bit peculiar, a bit needy, but Britain and America need to have a relationship. And uh, uh, you you look back at the list of people who've had state visits to Britain and they're, they're incomparable to the democratically elected I, president of the United States of America, so I, yes.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I just wondered as a negotiator whether we just didn't hand over, literally, our crown jewels a bit too early, because it was Trump who'd made it clear that he wanted to see the Queen, and that you know he particularly wanted to bring his family over, and his mother would be so proud of him. The idea, the idea that, that we the embarrassing Queen. the so we Queen, just kind of, honestly. I, mean, I don't care about embarrassing stupid, the Queen. i mean you know, I. She's had to have all the appalling yeah. old waxworks, as Charles called them, you know, the, the sort well, of isn't, But I do think we, we should kind send of just- her over there. We just gave it away slightly too early in the we negotiations. Could have,
0: she could have invited him to come to the UK with the state visit unmentioned. It's a sort of. Yeah. Behave yourself. Exactly.
1: You, you know. see the
2: Queen. Yeah, let's you just hear you say you're march, behind yeah, NATO 100% yeah.
1: and a few more things like that. Take some Adam's
2: swords. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no. Just leave you there. Just, Tell you to
0: stand still. I, you know, to, to coin a phrase,
1: it's the art of the deal. I'm not sure we handled the deal, but I certainly see no objection having the American president here while.
0: Well, and so isn't the difference between some of the other controversial figures who've been before, that that's a, it was a bit of soft power. It was trying to bring them in to the British view of the world, and it was a sort of coaxing them in. Was instead, it looks a bit like we've rewarded a guy who fought uh, an election campaign, which goes against those British values, and he's supposed, like, as you were saying before, he's supposed to live against a higher standard it than Putin or.
1: It's a bit like Trump giving um, Obama the Nobel Peace Prize before, before he's done, done anything. We you don't know, really it's know, it's what, just what sort of, sort of person yeah. is going to be Give like. it a mo.
3: Yes. No, but he's he's the president of the United States, and and because we have the special relationship, I think it's perfectly fine to invite him. I do find in some of the the protests, you know, I live in West London, and I and I've I, I see these signs, you know, um, because Trump's president, you know, come to Hammersmith for a, a, a gathering against uh, racism and imperialism. I'm just like, you know, it, what that reminds me of is the Bush years, and in a way, it, it, it's comforting because you think, oh, okay, so this is this is the crazy European left reacting as it always does to every American president. So uh, it, it's comforting to see the protests and, and I think Trump will uh, <laughs> deal with them in, a, in an interesting way. We'll see it's been them. interesting because we get them, they get the protests outside Parliament quite
0: a lot and there were some when they had the recent debate um, about whether or not he should address Westminster Hall, which nobody did, actually suggested that he should do, apart from John Burko who said he wouldn't support it. And it was really striking that the number of placard. it was literally every sort of group that had a complaint about anything, whether it was sort of elephants or diesel cars. My favorite placard, though, was one that said, Donald Trump is sent by Christ to move world events forwards towards the second coming. Which I I wasn't totally (laughs) sure if they were pro or anti.
1: (laughs) 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 Armageddon. Is that just
0: a single placard? That was just a single placard, yeah. Yeah, it was quite quite big.
2: Down with this sort of
0: thing. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's take another question. Uh, the gentleman
2: there. Thank you. Um, I'm a businessman, so I would ask the question that special relationships only take value according to the purpose to which they can be put. He's going to be in there, I would guess, for a full term, unless something happens and he's out, and I'm one of the very few people that actually thinks he's going to be in there for a second term. What is the best that this guy, now that he's in place, we can get from him, bearing in our mind our place in the world? Interesting question,
3: Sarah.
1: Well, we need that Brexit deal, don't we? I mean, we need not just warm words about that. We do need to be at the front of the queue and inking a very good deal. And, uh, you know, the signs are are reasonably favourable, but, uh, you know, he could just be patting us on the head and saying, there, there, don't worry, we'll sort you out. Um, Let's wait and see.
2: I think that, and I think more generally, we need him not to be a protectionist president. I think we've seen an incredible flourishing of trade and open markets over the course of a century, and for the world's leading trading nation to start to turn that back would be really detrimental. So if you were to keep those promises, I think that would be bad for everybody in the world, and it would be bad for us.
3: So, I mean, as as an American, I think that the things, well, as an American conservative, uh, a conservative restoration on the Supreme Court um, which he's already done with with Judge Gorsuch, um, uh, because I do think that that the legal left had gone too far um, in in imposing socially liberal pol- policy outcomes instead of through democratic means through judicial fiat. So I think that that's. Uh, but I would also ditto the, the two points made by Sarah and Phil.
0: Excellent. Let's take another question down here at the front. And there was somebody here. Yes, we'll come to you next.
1: What does the uh, American first rhetoric mean for the rest of the world? Is it an opportunity for growth for regional powers, so?
2: Phil? I don't know, is the honest answer what it means. Uh, I mean, I said just a moment ago, I, I worry economically. It means uh, sort of tariff walls, um, which I think would be hugely detrimental. So I, I fear that's what it means. And partly I fear that's what it means because that's easier to do than anything else. Foreign policy goals are incredibly difficult, whereas imposing tariffs is relatively speaking easier to do. So I fear if he wants to make good on that rhetoric, he'll do economic things which will be detrimental to us. Quite what else it would mean with the rest of foreign policy, I don't know. It's in one sense, a meaningless statement because every country puts themselves first. I mean, if you went to your nation and said, we're gonna put Britain third, um, they, would, they would think you were rather peculiar. So it probably won't mean much when it comes to, I think I'd say come from what you said before about the, you know, the, the, the grown up people who are around him on, on foreign policy and as I say, it's, so far at least, a more conventional view is, is taking hold. So I suspect the answer will be economic rather than foreign policy.
0: One question that um, sort of I think follows on from that a bit is that he's come in painting this very dark picture of how awful America is. But actually, the economy is doing pretty well, unemployment is low. And you could draw a comparison, if you wanted to, to what happened in '97, what New Labour inherited. Mm. They painted a very bleak picture of the country, but they inherited an economy on the up. And so, could he do not very much, but reap the benefit of? the fact that the U.S. economy is, is doing
2: well. And, very, and then te- yeah. and then essentially, I mean, he's already doing this, but take yeah, the credit. It's going to be very interesting, though, because at some point you have to pivot from it's a terrible place, which is why you need me to fix it, to I fixed it and now and now it's a good place, but it's not so good that you can risk the other side. And so he's got to go through that political journey, which all politicians go to. And if he is, does want a, a second term, you have to get to the point where he said, I've done a lot, but there's still a lot to do. And that requires an atmosphere of hope and the thing that's very different from Blair, 97, or from Obama, were they came to power because things were wrong, because you don't get elected unless things are wrong, but they came in an atmosphere and ethos of great hope. Fairly unspecific and vague hope and aspiration, but hope. Trump doesn't come in that ethos at all. He comes in a sense of, this world has gone really wrong, and it takes somebody, somebody kind of nasty to turn it around.
1: Uh, when Obama came in and that was the period that I was also living in Washington um, I think we've kind of forgotten what it was like at the time to suddenly have that crash just before he became president I mean there was real fear that you'd go to the ATM and you wouldn't be able to get your money out and you know all those sort of hasty protections for people with cash funds you know were sort of brought in and the housing market also slumped and uh people really lost their shirts then. And at the time, there was a lot of just, okay, steady as she goes, let's just see if we, you know, and then we have these trillion dollar deficits, but let's see if we can get our lives back to some sort of normality. Obama did sort of bring things back to normality. And now people feel really angry. They're not scared like they were anymore, but they feel really angry about what happened a few years ago. I think that's similar here. And, uh, uh, was one of the themes that you, one heard coming up again and again with Brexit. And you know, that sort of sense that somehow the American people weren't being looked after properly and that maybe other groups were being looked after more favorably than they were, that they had suffered, they had got really scared, and they never wanted that again. And so I think that's why, although in fact you know, Obama did come in and sign all that you know, billion-dollar um, economic stuff, people are not people don't want to give him the credit for turning anything round, partly because things that still, there's a lot of unfinished business there. But partly now, they just feel, they still, the politicians still haven't accepted what a shock they gave them then. And it was a very sort of fundamental one.
3: So I'll... Can I just add though, I, th- I do think I would pause on, on the, the sort of um, very rosy assessments of Obama's economic legacy. And here's a, a few, facts that, that suggest that he didn't do as well. Um, U- U- U.S. growth has now averaged about 2% a year for, for a decade. That's the worst recovery in the, in the post-war Yeah,
1: world. I'm not saying he did well. What I'm saying is uh, things just, kind of, you know, can sure. you consider the that kind of a triage. the economy almost went off the cliff?
3: Yeah. Uh, uh,
1: it's sort of now, do, yeah, it uh, then started to sort of flatline more.
3: You also have uh, structural employment issues where um, although the unemployment rate is quite low, I think it's under 5% now, the number of people who've left the workforce altogether because it's it, it's more <laughs> rational for them to get on benefits um, is really high. I think our workforce participation rate is... is uh, it's, under 70%, well under 70%, um, and, and far below much of the rest of Europe. So those are, and look, the people who I know who voted for, for Trump, um, almost all are, a lot of small business owners, regional factory owners and stuff, and what they will say is that Obama hit us with so much regulation uh, uh, that, that it made it very hard to do business. So if, if Trump can roll back some of the regulations, uh, do, do a broad tax cut, so that, uh, because the U.S. has some, some, some of the highest corporate rates in the world. In, I mean, because in the U.S. Your, your corporate tax rate is 35%, and then on top of that, each company will have to pay uh, state and municipal taxes. So it makes it very, very hard to want to want to invest in the country. So if yeah. he can roll back and do some ca- tax cuts, some regulatory or some deregulation, um, I think that would be another thing it's to look at. It's a great
1: b- myth that America is very low tax because it just has lots of different ways that's of right. taxing you. Yeah. You see, oh, income tax, that's not too bad. Then you find there are all these other taxes yeah. on top, no, and your yeah. property yeah. taxes yeah. good, yeah. and your sales it's great, taxes. It's, great and, it's and, um, another
2: great myth that America yeah. doesn't do a lot of redistribution through the state because it does. Mm. It does loads. It's just that the upshot of American capitalism is much more unequal than the upshot of European capitalism. But the American government is really active in trying to redress that it's more active than the Swedish government in in combating inequality it just has a bigger job to do in the first place I think what's interesting as well so I some of what you describe about the structural problems
0: with the employment market in America a lot of that applies in the UK as well mm. and uh, you know and a lot of the what you're talking about you'd like to see Donald Trump do in America is what well particularly Brexiteers want to see as a result of us leaving the EU and having mm-hmm. the control of being able to Or do is to the break. free
3: market minded Brexiteers because yeah. there is the protectionist strand in, yeah. in the Brexit movement. Yeah. yeah.
0: Let's not get bogged down in the
3: streets <laughs> of Brexit. <laughs> That's an entirely different... Uh, question there. Um, it's said that uh, Donald Trump is going to announce that he's going to spend 50 billion
2: on uh, the armed forces. forces. Sorry, he did, uh, he's going to tell the Congress that he wants to spend 50 billion on the armed forces. My question is... If this is going for to guns and tanks and planes, how is, Scott, how is that going to help with the war on terrorism? What, what, is it? what uses is he going to make <laughs> of all these extra planes and guns and tanks?
0: F- far more worryingly, he said he wants to start winning wars again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, to <laughs> win, w- to win to a war, some. you have to do. You do, you do have to start something. Yeah. It, yeah. It, uh, um, I think the obvious answer is that tanks and guns and planes don't
2: help in the war on terrorism. That- I think it was a rhetorical question, yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Because yeah. uh, you're, you're quite right. Of course,
3: of course, they don't. And I, I, I don't know what he means other than going yeah. off. <laughs> they do, though. If if you want to secure some of these ungoverned spaces that spin out Daesh or Islamic State type groups, so in in vast swaths of Syria and Iraq and, and, and Libya, then you do need. The kind of traditional, you'd need counterinsurgency to be sure uh, and special forces, but you also need Tomahawk missiles or whatever as well.
2: Do you think he's got the
3: mandate for that kind of intervention? I think he said he, 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 I thought his view of the Syrian war was terrible because it it suggested that what Putin and Assad were doing was good and he's going to team up with them. But certainly everyone wants. Islamic State destroyed. Mm. Um, and one of the, I think the moment that I thought, man, Trump might be president was at the Paris attack. Remember that the November 2015 yeah. Paris attack? And Obama came on and said, uh, he didn't, again, he didn't use the word radical jihadism or anything. He said, violent extremist groups and our strategy is working. And I think everyone was like, are you serious? Did you see what's happening in Paris? I thought he's, he might become president. Hmm. Um, and so he, you know, that's, a, that's something he said he would do. Um, and you're beginning to see deployments into parts of northern Syria and generals visiting and so forth. And, and that, of course, would test the special relationship because if, if some sort of
2: action followed there, then presumably the question would be posed of us whether we want to be participants in some small way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think when you have that many generals in, a, in your cabinet, you're quite likely to put military uh, matters at very high priority. Um, he said he's going to reduce the sort of diplomats, and I can see why, because the State Department is a huge and very bloated um, bureaucracy. But even so, there's. I, I hope he's not just going to sort of pour it into sort of massive aircraft carriers and sort of hardware, because the fact is the wars of the future are not going to be fought that way. You know, if he's, um, you know, there, there's already... I mean, they're very vulnerable. Um, Already the sort of foresighted uh, military people are saying, you know, you have all that weaponry and hardware that's very vulnerable to cyber warfare because you can cripple uh, an aircraft carrier, possibly, uh, with the right kind of cyber warfare. So uh, let's see where he puts those resources. But, um, you know, to use his words, let's do it smart. If he's going to invest in the military, do it smart.
0: We've probably got time for one more question if somebody's got one that they want to post, yeah, over there. Um, do you see the US one day joining the Commonwealth?
2: No. Oh. <laughs> I think it's unlikely. <laughs> Certainly under the current president, I think it's probably unlikely. There have been um, suggestions down the years that they, that they would, but um, they've always fallen foul of um, American views of joining anything run by the British. Which has tended to not go well for them. But it's
0: been the story's been around again in the last few days, and it all feels like it emanates from the sort of Farage wing of yeah.
1: It's, it's absolute baloney <laughs> <laughs> the
2: Americans fought a
1: war of independence, and, which they celebrate on July the 4th, and they're not going to join something. Yeah. We that set the where, White
2: House on fire last time. Yeah, exactly. Church,
1: right? They are not going to do anything <laughs> that means, uh, you know, bending the knee to the, uh, the royals again. However much they no, love them. All a we're
2: going to of... send them is Nigel Farage, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just before he shuts the border. Yeah. Yeah,
0: so he can't come back. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I think we've covered a, a huge amount of ground um, in all of that. Just a reminder, uh, if you could, if you want to sign up to my morning email, it's thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email, and uh, do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if you leave a review there. Um, we'd uh, appreciate that enormously. But for now, uh, from Sarah, Phil, Saurabh and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.